Podcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me is my lovely co-host, Matthew Dawkins. Hello there, Eddie. How are you doing today? I'm alright. I'm I'm okay. Uh, as of time of recording, doing some prep work in advance of our They Came From Double Feature crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. So yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, I mean, we, I don't think we'll be live when this goes out, but who knows? Time is fluid, as we know. Rarely settles for long. Uh, but yeah, the VAT and, and doing some editing work. Uh, yeah, you know, you're staying busy, staying busy. Keeping your hand in, as it were. And uh, both hands in sometimes. It's quite remarkable how much I can fit. But, uh, you have very large hands. <laughs> yes, well, that, that makes it even more shocking. <laughs> um, yeah, that's something we haven't really, I guess, talked a ton about is that um, with this year, with all of the... 10th anniversary celebrations um we actually have the pathcast organized and are doing stuff like ahead of time but it does mean that occasionally we have been recording things like slightly out of order or um we're not exactly sure when they're going to go live um so so if you hear a lot of hedging language about we think this will be at this time that's that's kind of why you're, you're hearing is because we're trying to be smart about these things and we'll see if that ends up panning out as we actually release but one thing we do know, this is going to be going live in March, um, which is the month that we're celebrating Cavaliers of Mars and our mm. cavalcade of, of celebrations during the 10th anniversary. It is uh, one of the creator-owned games at Omics Path Publishing. And we realized it's been a while since we had uh, Rose Bailey on the podcast to chat with her. So we thought now's a good time to kind of catch up with Rose, introduce Rose to people who aren't familiar with her, and just you know, talk about Cavaliers and other stuff in things. So thank you, Rose, for coming on. But glad to be here. Uh, so, uh, for those three or four of our listeners who actually may not be uh, uh, familiar with you, um, kind of who you are, how you got into uh, the industry, how you got to work on this path, you know, your origin story, how'd that go? Okay. I got hired by White Wolf in uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. I was originally hired to work on the EVE RPG, but pretty quickly I ended up succeeding Joseph Carricker on, by the end of the year, I think, on Vampire the Requiem. Mm-hmm. Then I developed that uh, 11 years oh, wow. yeah. uh, across two companies because I moved to Onyx Path um, right. after CCP laid me off. In 2008, I conceived Cavaliers of Mars on a whim and posted some notes to RPGNet. And from there, it became an ongoing project for me. This is 10 years of Onyx Path. It's also being February in 2022... It's the five-year anniversary or thereabouts of the final drafts being finished on Cavaliers. Yeah, wow. The other thing I did during all that time was work at Onyx Path as the development producer. I was, I think, the third full-time employee. Mm -hmm. And so did that until 2018. And these days I focus on my indie publishing efforts. Absolutely. And there's a lot to kind of go through that. We'll try to go through all that, but um, I, I want to kind of roll back a bit. Um, you mentioned that you were starting to conceive Cavaliers in 2008. So kind of what were your initial thoughts? How did that kind of come about? What were you wanting to do with that? Well, initially I wanted a one shot that I could run for Thanksgiving for my old vampire group. Oh, wow. And I wrote this mock trailer to give to them and uh, just wrote it. No video. Mm-hmm. I wrote this mock trailer to give to them and Never ended up running that game, but the idea really stuck with me. And so over the next couple of years, more posts to RPGNet, some systems exploration. I ran my first playtest at Gen Con in 2011 Mm -hmm. uh, with a Prisoner of Zenda riff. And that was a lot of fun. And when Rich started Onyx Path, one of the first things he said to me was that he was interested in publishing Cavaliers. (laughs) That was the same day I got laid off at uh, CCP, for the record. Wow. So Cavaliers then took a long time to get ready for actual writing because I had a lot of responsibilities on Onyx Path and I had a lot of vampire responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So it took me a little while to get started. We wrote the book, let's see, 2015 to 2017. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, early 2017 was when we finished Final Drafts. And then it was kickstarted in September, I think, of 2017. Sounds about right. 
uh, shipped in October of 2018. Yeah, because if I remember the timeline right, and Rich has said equivalent things to me, was that he reached out to you uh, for Cavaliers, like you said, pretty quickly. I found out Rich was interested in creator-owned pitches, and so I pitched Pugmire later. But because I wasn't doing the jobs of three people, it turns <laughs> out, um, I was able to get Pugmire together faster. And so Pugmire did go to Kickstarter before Cavaliers. By about um, a year or two. Yeah, because there was this kind of a point where we were talking up both, but Pugmire was kind of available and Cavaliers wasn't yet because, again, right. we were super busy. Um, but then Cavaliers came along later. Uh, so it was it was kind of interesting. You, you had a longer kind of tail. I mean, that was like, I guess, almost 10 years from initial conception to finally getting it, well, nine years before you're hanging out the door. Yeah. Um, I was working it, uh, working on it almost the entire time I was working on Vampire. Nice. I've uh, I've got a question actually about that inception gestation period, if you like, uh, because uh, you mentioned RPG Net, and uh, when I was rereading the book in advance of this episode, I noticed that you had uh, put in a special thanks to RPG Net. So. Uh, this was something I was unaware of when I first uh, looked into Cavaliers, but was this a, a a game that went through an extensive brainstorming process then? Was there a lot of, I guess, uh, uh, group contributions, ideas that were thrown at the wall? How, how exactly did that work? Well, I did a lot of brainstorming in one or two threads. I'd come back to it every couple of months. Mm. And a few people... Uh, contributed ideas, and I later bought those ideas from them. Okay. There wasn't a lot of interaction from other people, but there were a few uh, cool things. Um, mm. So I bought those and um, gave credit on the on the uh, final book. One of the things I spent the most time trying to hash out in public threads was what to do with the system. I'm a perennial tinkerer with systems, as Eddie at least knows very well. I can well. definitely <laughs> confirm that. <laughs> um, and it took me a while to reach something I was comfortable with. I think I finished the system that I ultimately used in 2011, but I went through a number of iterations between that and deciding which system to use in 2014, probably. Yeah, there was open brainstorming. I even got some interest from another publisher back around 2009, 2010. But the the offer was insultingly low for uh, for work for hire. Then they said I couldn't write my own mechanic. So that, that deal went absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Was very happy to work with Rich and Mike Cheney, both of whom I worked with at White Wolf. And that came out as a much better deal, both financially and creatively. The book really wouldn't look as good as it does without Mike. Absolutely not. Well, Mike, Mike is someone who never gets enough credit. Oh, no, definitely not. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a, uh, a an issue across the industry. We very rarely give the people in charge of art direction, layout, and graphic design uh, enough credit. Well, you know, Drive Through RPG has credits for artists, but not art direct. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if that were the trace, Mike Cheney would be like, 700 of them. <laughs> the most <laughs> prolific art director in the industry, possibly. He, he's done a ton of work. Well, so so this system became the uh, Deimos, or Deimos. How, how would you pronounce it? Uh, I would say Deimos, but Demos. I'm not sure okay. that's correct. Uh, well, none, none of us are. I'm going to assume it's Greek. Uh, I believe it is. Um, I could be wrong. And none of us are. So, But that's what the system became. And I'm hoping we get to speak about the system a bit um, mm-hmm. shortly. Uh, but on the subject of system, and as you say, you're an inveterate tinkerer when it comes to game mechanics. And I know this is something we've definitely spoken about before, how you like to marry system to setting and make them actually interact with each other. You know, not just feel like this is a system, here's a setting, it functions, but that's it. Yeah. Uh, do you favor the creation of a, I guess, bespoke system for a game? So, I mean, you, looking at other games you've worked on, looking at the vast uh, amounts of contributions you've made to things like Chronicles of Darkness and other game lines, uh, do you? It, does your mind work in a way that says, well, 
I would actually run this game with a slightly different system to this one, rather than having a one consistent uh, storytelling system, you know? Well, one of the things... I do like making bespoke systems, although sometimes in my indie stuff I use other people's systems. But with Chronicles of Darkness, it wasn't so much the core system that I wanted to do bespoke. It was all of the monster type specific subsystems mm -hmm. that I wanted to make work in ways that reinforced the game's themes and genre. With Vampire, that's very much taking vampire movies and you know, some of them from the perspective of vampire protagonists, some of them from the perspective of vampire antagonists. Mm -hmm. But I always wanted to make sure that when you're interacting with the subsystems, it reinforces that feel of genre. I remember, I think it was pretty early on when you took over Requiem, but I remember you and I having a conversation about how the five Requiem clans map to kind of five archetypal movie vampires. Yeah, you've got... Well, most of them do. You've got Ventru, right. who are one form of your classic movie Dracula. Mm -hmm. You've got the Deva, who are your interview with a vampire, sexy vampires. Mm. You've got the Gangrel, who are your near-dark vampires, also mm. your Lost Boys vampires. You've got your Nosferatu, the name kind of gives it away. <clears throat> and then you've got the Mechit, and we struggled with the Mechit because they don't or at least at first, we didn't see an obvious movie analog for them. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, they're kind of like the other half of Nosferatu with the skulking and such. What we settled on with Requiem for Rome was that they were seers. Right. They have this ability to see into, I don't know, what the uh, evil that lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> and so, I mean, the key insight on Requiem for Rome was that the Mechit were the only clan that could that could detect Diablery. Right. And uh, so that kind of evolved into them being seers. And then their clan book, they became the um, they became kind of the occultism vampires, not occultism as in sorcery necessarily, but occultism as in the occulted and the mystical. Right. Five different species of vampires, all with different literary influences absolutely and, and to kind of broaden your point i mean that that's something that I, i've definitely seen in second edition chronicles of darkness which you've had your hand in most of those games at this point yeah um yeah, of, of making each of those distinctive because now like well for example uh forsaken was one that um i feel like struggled but then we were able to kind of dial that in in second edition to get more of that distinct experience across mage another example of trying to Dialo makes that game distinctive, not only from its predecessor, but also in and of itself. So Vampire doesn't, not only doesn't feel the same as Werewolf and Mage and, and Promethean and all them, but also mechanically plays differently. Yeah, that was something I very much wanted to achieve. And then Stu Wilson brought that to Werewolf and Dave Brookshaw brought it to Mage. Mm -hmm. And I think we achieved over the course of... How many years did we spend on the second editions? Uh, we started them, if, if you count the, the the Chronicles books, like the Strix Chronicles and all that, um, those go back to like 2010. Okay, yeah. So that was a very long process, and I think we got the subsystems unique in each one of them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so how did you kind of bring that thought process to Cavaliers, right? So what was the experience you're trying to go for mechanically? Well, Cavaliers is the biggest system inspiration was the Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Mm -hmm. That was where I looked to for the very high success rate of things that aren't fights and the very elaborate set piece arrangement of fight. Mm -hmm. And I went back to that one over and over. Princess Bride obviously is going to be an inspiration for anything that involves sword fights. Right. There's also some pulp stuff, mostly not actually um, not actually John Carter, system-wise. But there's some Solomon Kane in there. There's Black Agnes in there, though not as intense. Mm -hmm. Dark Agnes, I'm sorry. Black Agnes is a hag. <laughs> I right. love hags. But um, yeah, so there were, there were a lot of... And there are a lot of random classic movies... Don Juan, The Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn is another one. 
Mm-hmm. The Scarlet Pimpernel, which I believe was ba- was Basil Rathbone. Yes. A lot of older movies where you have quirky but obviously uh, heroic characters and their spectacular fight scenes. And there was also huge influence. System and setting was Fritz Leiber's Fafford and Grey Mouser books. Right. Probably the biggest single influence on what player characters do. And what player characters do in Cavaliers is get in over their heads and have to work their way out with an increasingly large series of bullshit and sometimes with swords. <laughs> and sometimes with love. And sometimes with love. Oh, definitely with love. Weird love interests. Try not to be objectifying <laughs> about it, but weird love interests are definitely part of the Cavaliers experience. E- even even one of the stats is actually with love. And while that's not exclusively romantic love, it does speak to the nature of passionate, emotional attachments that drive your stories. And you see that a lot in the random generators too, which were written by my friend Ben Baugh. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of very personal, intense motivations. And again, designed to get you in over your head with your player, your player characters. We actually ran a fiasco game in the setting ones. Oh, wow. We used the 60s London crime play set and just reskinned it for Cavaliers. Nice. Yeah, I, I could see how that could work nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, I I do love how well while there's uh, a lot of uh, I guess little bits to the system that all have a wonderful flavor to them, uh, especially when you look at something like character creation and you're going through a, a lot of what we see in Story Path as well with uh, choosing a character's origins, uh, their their career, which in Story Path would be something like your your role or your uh, your archetype. But mm. what really appeals to me is when you get down to motivations. I think motivations and methods are, for me, the heart of the Cavaliers system when I'm running it, when I'm playing it. Yeah, they're they're one of my favorite parts. Uh, yeah, you mentioned for love being uh, one of the motivations, and the others are for honor and for self. And being detached from... The, the usual array of traits that we use for characters in role-playing games, again, gives them such a unique flavor and really evokes the feel of the game that your character is defined either by honor, love, or self. And yeah, they will have ratings in the others, but they are staggered. One gets D10, one gets D8, one gets D6 as your choice. And uh, I, I know it's a, it's a very loose question. It's one of the worst questions to ask in an interview, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's where, <laughs> uh, where did you get the idea to, to use, I guess, oh. what, what feels like an abstract, I suppose, uh, to, to help define characters rather than a crunchy, I am this strong, therefore I will hit you this hard. I can't remember why I first started doing stats like that. It was probably influenced from Forge games. Mm-hmm. I know that one of the early ones I liked was In a Wicked Age and its anthology engine, which is yeah. a pretty clear influence on Cavaliers specifically. But one of my beliefs is that one of the most expressive things you can do in a set of mechanics is deciding what the attributes and skills or the equivalents are. If you can look at the character sheet and have a good idea of the themes or what the characters do, that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And so I try to do that with a lot of my games. I actually have a have a trick for boiling down stats, if you'd like to hear it. No, please. Okay. So you take all of your inspirational characters and you write down keywords for what they do and or what their motivations are. And then you go through that list and see what you've listed two and three times, or four times, I guess. Mm. And you take that stuff and a, as your next layer of list. And then you go down that list and pick out the most important elements of that list. And then you go a series of passes doing the same thing until you have something that feels representative of your genre or influences. That's how, for example, I got down the list for uh, Princess of the Universe, which is a game I did with Fate, but it's got a custom set of stats. 
So just boiled that down one list by one list. Actually, that's kind of how we did brainstorming at Whitewall. It, it, it's true because it's it's the let's just throw a bunch of ideas and then and then we prune those and then we take the existing ideas and build on those. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar to how we did brainstorming. Doesn't surprise me. It's probably where you got it from. Oh yeah. So that's one of the ways I get stats. I don't remember specifically how I got the one from Cat ones for Cavaliers, but it would have been something like that. Mechanics. You look at the types of interactions, which I know is horribly vague, but you look at the types of interactions <laughs> that drive scenes that you like in your inspirations. Yeah. And yeah. you see how the pacing of those goes, what's actually at stake, what kinds of actions people are taking, and you kind of try and assign dice or cards or what have you to each of those kinds of interactions and that feeds back on your stats which is why i bring it up to the stat question that feeds back on your stats because you need the stats that will drive those type of interactions mm -hmm. and i would be remiss to mention that the traits and the way they come together in cavaliers of mars was very inspired by cortex plus mm. yeah i can see that dna yeah, yeah. Um, you go up as far as D12s in this game, don't you? Uh, from yeah. From D4s to D12s. Which, conveniently, is like the White Wolf Five Dots. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love it. You're right. Um, so, you mentioned kind of the feel of it, and that was one thing I initially, I mean, I was a bit surprised by, because I think when people think, oh, this is going to be a romantic, in the literary sense, game, Son of Mars, most people do think of John Carter, but yet... I read the John Carter books again a few years back and I was surprised kind of how brutal the fighting usually is in those. It's much more, it's, a, it's adventure books, they're pulp books, but it's still kind of through the lens of war story. Whereas yeah. this is so much more swashbuckling. Yeah. Well, the truth is I don't think I had read any John Carter books or at least I hadn't read them since childhood mm -hmm. when I started working on Cavaliers but I was familiar with some of the elements by pop culture osmosis. So when right. I started working on Cavaliers, I was like, oh, I need to go back and read these. Mm -hmm. And I got some cool ideas from them, like atmosphere processors and forearmed people. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of other inspiration going on. And that sort of was kind of backhacked into what I already had. Also, I forgot to mention that my dad's favorite movie came into the mix here, Planet of the Apes which oh. is kind of a dark nuclear story by the time you get to the end of it. But it's also up to there, got this cascading level of things going wrong, which mm. is very appropriate for Cavaliers. That's true. And I named the Zayus after Dr. Zayus. Yes, uh, that, that is something I noticed, the Zayu Zayun. Uh, and uh, I don't know, um, you know, I, I can certainly detect some... It, would it be Return to the Planet of the Apes? I'm trying to think. What's the, the second one? The second one is Return. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the underground complex and... Uh, well, Eddie knows I'm a big fan of pretty terrible sci-fi and movies in general. <laughs> and there is a law of diminishing returns when it comes to those original Planet of the Apes movies. Yeah. But it has still set design, incredibly striking imagery. Oh, yeah. Throughout all of them. They somehow managed to carry off bad ape costumes. You, you forget you're looking at bad ape costumes because the entire world looks, uh, on one hand, horrifying, on the other hand, beautiful. Yeah, there's some beautiful production design. Mm. Yeah, Cavaliers, despite being set in the absolute last renaissance that the people on Mars will experience... Well, I guess unless you fix things, which is right. always a factor. But it's set in Mars's last renaissance. It's the best paintings, the best theater, the best food, but it's all going to go away soon. And so it's beautiful in a lot of ways. This is where you get your Martian Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. But it's also right at the end of the world. Uh, Jack Vance's Dying Earth was a big inspiration as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, this whole city named after it. Yeah, so it's exciting and beautiful and elegiac. Mm. And I wanted to get that across in the language, which my writing team was absolutely wonderful on. And I also wanted to get it across in the visuals, which Mike, as we mentioned earlier, Mike did a fantastic job art directing the book and really made it look unique. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the artist he worked with and the art direction he gave made it look very unlike, well, frankly, anything else I'd worked on. No, it, it definitely seems to be channeling that uh, very kind of uh, 30s pulp novels where you had a picture like every 10 or 15 pages that was usually done in black and white, sometimes with heavy inks. It, it definitely nailed that structure. And that was actually, I was wondering if that was part of the reason why uh, the art ended up getting captioned, because that was something else that's distinctive about this book. Oh, uh, that was Mike's idea. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't remember the specific thing that prompted him to say this, but he said, do you want to do captions for the illustrations? And he did mention that that would set things apart. And I was like, yes, yes, I do want to do captions. So, and that helps get across a lot of little lore things mm -hmm. that were, I guess, when you do fantasy books and you're making up all sorts of random elements, things that may seem arbitrary when they're first introduced. It can be very easy to have illustrations not... Well, when you've got a vampire and a vampire illustration, you more or less know what that person is. They've got fangs. Right. With fantasy, it's a lot harder to get that across. And captions made it easier. I could say, well, this is a person from the city of Vance fighting a uh, plant woman in an arena. Mm -hmm. And so that really helped a lot. And also, yeah, like, like another example, um, I just flip open the book, but yeah, revelers in Surtur celebrate the small moon festival. And that's great because it's just a picture of a bunch of people in masks drinking. But the fact that there's a festival called the small moon festival, immediately going, what's the small moon festival? What's that about? Why do these people celebrate that? And it, you're right, it adds so much with just a few words. The reason everybody celebrates the small moon festival is that Frank Frazetta always drew one of the moons of Mars smaller than the other. <laughs> and I just thought that was a really striking image. So I'm like, they probably have a festival for this. That's amazing. I love that. Actually, that leads me kind of to another question is, is uh, you have a great range of peoples in, in this book. Um, some of them like you mentioned, are, are pretty clearly uh, inspired by other fiction set in this kind of rough, tiny subgenre. Um, some of them seem pretty distinctive, though. So I'm curious, like how how you came across like uh, the different uh, sticks of them, different different peoples that came out. I don't remember the brainstorming process for those very clearly. I worked mm -hmm. with Audrey Whitman a lot on them. Okay. Um, Audrey was the senior writer on Cavaliers, as I believe she's credited in the book, and. It was partly just fitting characters into the regions we had and into the kinds of biomes that those people might come from. Mm -hmm. I don't remember formally how we came up with them, though, the ones that were not inspired by other media. That's fair, but it, it was just um, not only was it an interesting range because they're not like traditional fantasy-ish archetypes. Mm -hmm. um, I tried hard not to have any dwarves or elves. Right. Or even something that could fit into that space. Because certainly there's been plenty of these fantasy games where it's like, okay, you can kind of squint and see that's, that's the elf archetype. You just can't really do that here. But also, one thing I found interesting is the descriptions of the races imply that, that deeper history, that elegiac feeling you're going for. So like the Red Martians, the Roundheads, the Pale Martians, all kind of claim a different connection to the quote-unquote original Martians. Yeah, how the first they relate Martians. to each other. And so it's not just like six different random peoples that are scattered around a planet. It's the, okay, no, actually three of them are connected together from a large enough lineage scale. Um, and the other characters relate and, and weave into that, that ancient history, which I found really, really interesting. Well, one of my favorite small details, and I think it's only mentioned once or twice in the book, is that the Pale Martians deeply resent all of the people who don't adequately remember the first Martians. <laughs> and that's why they live in their cities, because there's a respect or a reverence. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Pale Martians have a number of cultures, but the general ones of the people who live in the dead cities is, Jesus, fuck people, have some respect. <laughs> remember where you came from. Yeah. Uh, you've got well, it extends to that first Martians history that appears throughout the book. The idea that just out there in the wastes, you've got their pyramids, 
adds oh, stalking yeah. stalking those ruins. You have still automated tripods mm-hmm. that uh, that are presumably guarding the burial chambers or religious icons of the uh, of the now past Martians. And it's one of those parts of the game that strikes me as as I guess particularly inspiring because I, I've done a lot of Cavaliers of Mars play that has involved an awful lot of, I guess, social combat and, uh, I guess, repartee between different peoples, mm-hmm. uh, different aristoc- aristocracies and so on, channeling a lot of musketeers. Uh, but just over the horizon, you've got the possibility of going a little bit Indiana Jones or The Mummy mm-hmm. uh, or even... Uh, Doctor Who, uh, with his Pyramids of Mars. No, I love that episode. Unsurprisingly, sure. <laughs> I, I I wondered if you did. I wondered if it was a reference uh, when I started reading that in the book. Uh, not specifically. Surprisingly, it is not a specific Doctor Who reference. Unlike so many things I did, including in Vampire. <laughs> but Eddie caught me once. I did. But the pyramids are obviously a pop culture thing. And their particular usage is meant to have the long lost nature of the world, mm-hmm. which, yeah. uh, as I was talking about before, it illustrates the vast depth of what's gone before. And a lot of that comes from Jack Vance again, and the fact that his characters were always wandering through a world that had been inhabited by so many other cultures. Right. that had um, gone before and vanished or turned into the cultures of today. But, you know, there are these vast, let's call them Roman ruins throughout the, throughout the world. Uh, also note on the tomb stalkers, the tomb stalker full pager is, I'm not sure whether it's in the first book or the Vance book, but it was the second piece of art we commissioned for Cavaliers from Chris Huth. Oh wow! The first was the um, was the apprentice and her mentor looking out on the city of Vance with the cool Zardos heads. Yeah, those are awesome. It, uh, and like one of the things that I, I found is, is kind of almost distinctive to your style. I think is. Um, you really like to blend very uh, uh, blunt, aggressive language with very ornate, intricate language. Definitely Requiem, there's a lot of that, right? Um, but like even the city names, like you have clearly strong, evocative ideas like City of Anger and City of Battle Hymn, uh, but also, you know, kind of ornate names like uh, Chiriso and, and Samara. Um, assuming I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, Ki- uh, Chiaro. Chiaro. The thing about anger and those other cities like that, despair, is that they're all named after emotions. Mm-hmm. They, the first Martian cities are all named after emotions. Battle Him, for the record, actually was licensed from my friend Judd Carlman's Martian RPG Dictionary of Mo. Oh. Uh, as was the Damsel Messiah, although I took her in a different direction. But there was, it's like a one-pager or a two-pager in Dictionary of Moo, and I wanted to reference, as referencing many of my Martian influences, I wanted to reference that, so I asked Judge, Judd's permission. That's really cool. I, I love saying stuff, because, and I think that it's not quite patchwork, uh, because it all does kind of tie together, but it definitely, a lot of fantasy games in my experience have the problem of feeling designed, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the, the dwarves all conveniently fit in this nation and the elves all conveniently fit in this nation. And, you know, they're all roughly the same size and, you know, they have a history that allows them to conveniently be in this status quo. Uh, whereas with Cavaliers, it, it, it's almost messy. And I think some of that comes from the fact that you're, you're, trying to reference these different things and stitch them together. And it gives it a kind of frisson that makes it feel, organic that a lot of fantasy settings don't well thank you partly that's the fritz Leiber influence coming through Mm, okay but also partly it's that i designed and my team designed 
each of the parts of the world we did like MMO zones. So each, mm. which I had some experience with by the time I was bit. doing the book, both at CCP and at Zenimax, mm-hmm. I tried to make each area feel really customized with its own hazards, its own people like NPCs, and each person's own problems. Mm-hmm. So I tried, to, and adventure hooks of various kinds. So I tried to design each place as organically one place and then figured out secondarily how those those places re- related to each other. And actually, that's a, a good point because um, a piece of tech that I completely stole from you is that whole just tables. There's, there's, there's gobs of tables in this. Um, oh, I, I love tables, yes. And, and, and it's great. I mean, like, so like when with Bugmire, I was like, you know, giving six example characters for each of the callings and something you can roll a die on and just go ahead with. I mean, that's a small implementation, but you go to great lengths. That's one of the things I think is great about Cavaliers of Mars is that if you are confused about what to do with the game, you can just roll some dice and get started. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote some of those, but most of them are by Ben Baugh, who I've worked with on probably at least a dozen projects. Mm-hmm. And he is a genius with random tables. Like that 36 dramatic situations riff mm-hmm. in Cavaliers, that's all Ben. Oh, wow. Very conveniently, they turn into a D66 roll. Right, exactly. I was thinking that. And in fact, he's going to be writing the tables for my upcoming game, Witchblood. Oh, nice. So, one roll fairy tales. I really enjoy random tables. One of the things I thought we could have done more of at white wolf was more random tables and card draw tables and stuff like that i think early on white wolf had rejected that as not being sufficiently handcrafted narrative right but i really liked them the old school renaissance was a big influence on the existence of many many tables yeah they were tables were kind of coming back into the zeitgeist in the mid 2000s and i definitely picked up on that yeah, it was uh, actually the Tables and Cavaliers of Mars that uh, I'm trying to think which of the games influenced. Uh, I, I was developing, I may have even been Chicago uh, by night for Vampire. Mm, maybe. Uh, when, because I recalled back in the first edition of Chicago by night, at the back of the book, you had tables of random story hooks. And that had gone to the back of my mind, uh, you know, very much forgotten. And I remember reading through Cavaliers of Mars and thinking, oh, wow, these can be used not just uh, as one-liners, although they exist in here as well and to a tremendous effect, because, again, that gets replicated in the They Came From games, uh, but also for full-bodied story hooks or plot hooks. Uh, with each location uh, around Mars, you have hooks, uh, and they are ways to, you know, set off on a new journey, a new campaign, or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw it in Cavaliers of Mars, I thought, well, we can put this back into Vampire, just because we haven't been doing this for the last 20 years uh, in Vampire the Masquerade doesn't mean we can't do it again. And so, yeah, uh, that kind of setup, which I I also find incredibly appealing. If I'm a GM and I want to run a game at a convention with very little preparation, the best thing to do is to give me a lot of story hooks because I can start putting the dots together just by using a little bit of uh, a push from the book that isn't deeply embedded in the text but is called out. So yeah, I'm very much in favour of that and as, as you both pointed out, Calvinism of Mars has a lot of ideas, but they're presented so cleanly. Mm-hmm. It's, it isn't overwhelming. And a dedicated setting and system game like this one could easily be overwhelming. It could be daunting. You might look at it and think, well, that's nice, but I don't know what to do with it, which is something we in the RPG industry hear a lot. But I don't think anyone would have that excuse with Cavaliers of Mars because all those ideas are right there on the page, presented nicely for you to use. Mm -hmm. Well, again, uh, a lot of that is the MMO zone influence. And 
the the structured plot hooks that go with each city and each location within each city. The other thing is that I think one of the best parts of tables is when you get results that don't quite go together. Yeah. Like they almost do, but not quite. Mm -hmm. And if you can get different tables to synergize like that, it's an excellent GM tool. Right. Because you, you have to start thinking creatively, how do I reconcile these two strange concepts? And then usually something much better comes out than just, okay, they go and have a fight in a bar, I guess. Yeah. Although fights in bars are legit. No, it's always. <laughs> One of the early Cavaliers of Mars play tests went completely off the rails in the first scene when I was introducing <laughs> everybody. Um, Scion developer. Neil Price and Geist developer Travis Stout got their characters into a fight <laughs> and other characters started betting on it. And God. so most of the game was actually breaking out of the drunk tank. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I completely agree about uh, when tables don't exactly synergize. It was, um, and I keep going back to it. I'm, I must be very excited about the upcoming campaign, but I was running a one-shot of They Came From Classified recently, and that has tables in it for things like fiendish plots and twists and so on. Nice. And the and the tables that I used, I, I decided, well, you know, we've written all this stuff, so I'm not going to come up with my own plot. They're in the book. So I used the table, and somehow I ended up with the plot was the Prime Minister has been assassinated, dot, 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 look to the next table. <laughs> Um, um, and you and I think the method by which the prime minister was assassinated was with a glass eye. And okay, so, that's fun. Yeah, so we had uh, so I came up with an assassin who s somehow used his glass eye as a method of murdering people. That was his trademark. People, you'd always find a glass eye down the victim's throat <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Or, or having murdered them in incre increasingly inventive and ludicrous fashions with a glass eye. Something just slip up on it and fall out a window. Uh, <laughs> a glass eye uses a golf ball at range and knocks someone out. So that sort of thing. Oh, I love this. I love this. The glass <laughs> eye killer. That's amazing. It's about empowering people. Uh, rather than the, going down the usual Bond trope of saying, well, this person's got a glass eye, so they must be villainous. Well, right. this person does have a glass eye and they're villainous, but they use it to very lethal effect. Indeed, totally. So uh, I'm curious, um, since you've worked on Cavaliers of Mars, uh, you mentioned that you're doing your own indie stuff now. I mean, has your work on Cavaliers kind of inspired the stuff you're doing now? Is it an evolution of that work? Is it kind of just totally different well system wise i tend to go in very different directions with each project mm -hmm. but the general approach of cavaliers how i boiled down the stats how i ran play tests um the fact that i try to provide plot hooks in a an approachable structure all of that is stuff that i learned doing cavaliers and over the extended incubation period of the project I had a chance to try in a lot of different ways. So in that sense, yes, it's an influence. And also the, that was my first giant victory with random tables. So I've definitely taken that into further projects. Nice. So what are you working on these days? You mentioned it's been you know several years since Cavaliers of Mars. What are you working on now? Well, I've been doing indie games for, uh, since 2017, but I really started in 2018 when I resigned from Onyx mm -hmm. Path. Mm -hmm. And my big successes in that period, creatively and commercially, have been Beautiful Anomalies, which is sufficiently advanced theology, I like to call it. And Eddie <laughs> worked on that. Eddie wrote The Antagonists. I did. That was so much fun. Um, many of whom I have used in playing the game. Nice. Uh, so then there's Miserable Secrets, which I like to describe as a Cadfilevania. Mm -hmm. Um, and then current, currently I'm working on something called Witch Blood, which is a 
Brothers Grimm meets Robert E. Howard universe. It's fairy tales, but with the agency and sometimes the grumpiness of sword and sorcery protagonists. Mm -hmm. And that's based on your... Uh, It's based on my Sasha Witchblood novels, yeah. Which are so good. I love the Sasha Witchblood stories. Thank you. Um, Because you're right. It's definitely kind of Sasha is the almost Red Sonia-esque character who just kind of stomps into a story, sometimes hungover. Uh, <laughs> yes. And just is, is is just kind of irritated by the whole situation. But then applying fairy tale tropes to that is, is such a great dissonance because it also not only um, helps to put the, the, the like you said, that, that grumpy sword and sorcery protagonist into sharp relief, but also it helps to illustrate how dark these fairy tales originally really were. Yeah. The source material is definitely very useful. The basic idea with a Witchblood session is that you take a conventional fairy tale, then you boil down the NPCs and the kind of magical vibes and rules from that fairy tale, Mm. and then you put in protagonists who are outsiders and who are never neutral Mm -hmm. in a dispute or a local problem. And then very frequently, although not mandatorily, your characters will find some loose end in the tapestry of the magic and personal conflicts and just pull on it until the entire tapestry unravels. Which is probably a little bit of your noir influence, too. Oh, yeah. I bring noir to everything. (laughs) It's one of the things you and I bond on. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, So, uh, uh, is there anything else that you want to kind of uh, promote or talk about? Uh, Well, I do want to mention that Witchblood should be coming out within, let's say, three weeks of this going live, since I don't Mm -hmm. know exactly when this is going to go live, but in mid to late March. Okay. Okay. my Patreon backers can get it March 2nd. So if anybody wants to back that, I would be deeply grateful. Mm-hmm. And you can check out all my indie titles on Drive Through RPG under my company label, Fantasy Heartbreaker. Excellent. And then if you want to chat with you about your games or capitalers or whatever, where do they find you online? RPGNet. RPGNet. Just, just, just go to RPGNet and just start shouting. RPG net and uh, start shouting in tabletop role playing open, but don't start shouting at other people. <laughs> RPG net does not like that. <laughs> the site does not take it well. Yeah. Big purple will stomp you. <sighs> um, and uh, uh, Matthew, um, where can go find you and also talk about the Kickstarter that may or may not be starting as this goes live. Well, uh, before I go into that, I just want to, pay a big kudos to Rose on Miserable Secrets because it's a game I have played a lot of with my group. Oh really? That's and cool. And I I remember when I was first reading through it, uh, I've got it in print as well as PDF, but I remember when I was first reading through it in PDF uh, the description of uh, the, the gloomy gothic castle in ruins of course, with mm-hmm. mist hanging low around its base and not that far away on the uh, local crossroads a festival taking place with people coming from miles around to celebrate probably the vanquishing of the darkness only for a creepy stalking figure slightly taller than everybody else uh, <laughs> walking out of the gloom towards them on eight legs uh, <laughs> aristocratic in bearing but arachnid in behavior and i thought oh okay i can do a lot with this this Mm -hmm. uh it was as you say cadfilevania fantastic amalgamation there an air of tim burton as well good tim burton oh yeah Yeah, yeah. there's some tim burton in there yeah Um, uh sleepy hollow specifically mm, uh, yes which was it was a big influence and that was the first movie i saw with my wife on our first date ah, a, a true romance <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But yes, uh, they can find me on matthewdawkins.com. They can find me on Twitter at DawkinsMP. They can find me on the Anarchist Path Discord. And if they want to uh, talk about uh, they came from Classified or they came from the Cyclops Cave, both of which should be on crowdfunding now or soon, then do go to the Onyx Path Discord where there are dedicated channels to discuss it or set up a thread on RPGNet. Uh, we love RPGNet. I certainly love RPGNet. And uh, I would love to participate in your musings on those games. Indeed. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And also, I, I do actually- also agree that... that- uh, I also am a fan of Miserable Secrets. In fact, I'm trying to get a group to play it maybe uh, uh, soon. So cool. um, I may poke you about how to run that online a little bit. Uh, I, I ran it for the play testing entirely on Roll20. So. Okay, sweet. Uh, one thing about They Came From and RPGNet actually is that there is an active where I read of They Came From Beyond the Grave over there. Oh, nice. Right now. There is indeed. Look into that. Uh, so yeah, if you want to um, chat with, with uh, me about stuff, um, I am available at uh, Pugsteady on Twitter, P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. Uh, you can also find all of my work at Pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find Matthew and I, and sometimes Rose, um, hanging around the various uh, Onyx Path uh, resources, uh, the forums, mm-hmm. and also our Onyx Path Discord. You can find all of our products through our website at theonyxpath.com. Uh, so if you do like Cavaliers of Mars, um, definitely appreciate you picking it up. But also, if you could rate and review, that always helps. Uh, let us know what you think about the game at DriveThruRPG or whatever uh, online storefront you purchase it on. That that really does help. But uh, once again, thank you, Rose, for coming out. It's always a blast hanging out with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And as always, many worlds, one path. Comes. <laughs>